How do we create conditions to best support people to engage with the future's uncertainty and to find their agency? What would active members of an art collective find out about just doing that? And could they share what they have learned from their journey from immersive arts installations to running futures exercises? So this idea of that when we're inviting people to come and be part of a, a futuring exercise, we are hosting them in a number of different ways. So we're looking after them, we're caring for them, we're enabling them to play. Because um, if you're feeling exposed in some sense, you're not going to play freely and be able to like have a bunch of strange ideas. So the art of hosting is about picking people up, carrying them through this process, letting them feel comfortable, letting them feel uh, open to a whole bunch of freedoms that they, they can have and discussions that they can have and leave that space and that time feeling like they were they did something that was unique. The whole sort of playfulness, not sure whether that could be called a practice or a method, but in all of our ideas and, and, and approaches, it's the playfulness. It's allowing or supporting people to not fear the future. I think it's also about developing some sort of a, a lust of Zukunft. It's a German expression here. A certain passion, a certain excitement towards futures in, instead of merely being completely paralyzed when thinking about it. Those are my guests today on FuturePod, Tina Auer and Tim Boyquette. The self-titled talking heads of an art collective called Time's Up. They join me from their workshop in Austria. Welcome to FuturePod, Tina and Tim. Welcome. Hello. Glad to be here. Yeah, great being here. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks very much. I'm glad to, to get a chance to put you in the pod gallery of our guests. So we'll start with the origin question for Tina and Tim. I think we do an easy one, so to say, because we are not uh, talking about the origin of ourselves as Tim and Tina. <laughs> but I think we go into the origin of Time's Up. Time's Up is an art collective in the broadest sense and Time's Up is interested in a very wide range of themes regarding sociopolitical relevant topics, and we are trying to bridge art, technology, science, research, and even entertainment, as long as it doesn't bore us. Tim and myself, we are part of that collective since, since its beginning, actually, and this will be the per perspective we are taking on. We are members, parts, and maybe we are gear wheels of that collective and we started off in the mid of 90s so really in the previous century there have been a few cornerstones which and still are of high relevance in all of our approaches in our work and in our thinking so what we do are situations and that that also leads to the subtitle of Time's Up, you're much better in saying that Tim uh, the laboratory for the composition of experiential situations which has also wow. been experimental situations at some times and various other versions of that. In general, we are really keen setting up and staging environments which are tangible. So we have got a very strong preference for materiality, for physicality, and it's really like environments placed and staged in real space, one-to-one. -one. And 
always allowing an audience to explore them. Environments which can be really experienced in a very playful way without gamification though. So it is really what we do and who we are. are those ones setting up and offering immersive environments which are aiming this is what we are aiming for in our artistic productions. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of development yet yeah, having these immersive installations and we did a whole bunch of work maybe eight, nine years between the mid-90s into the 2000s with these sort of immersive media-enriched environments. And we talked a lot about, yeah, people like exploring them. And an anthropologist fellow, Robert Fisher from Switzerland, referred to the audience as proto-scientists. We were inviting them to explore <laughs> this world and to investigate the physics of the world in some sense. Like, how does this world work? What are the physical manipulations that we can do? How can we create sound? And we had fantastic experiences of building things and then hearing all these strange sounds emerging and then finding that people had really dived into the possibilities of some of these interfaces and media environments and had created things that were for us completely unimaginable um, through wow. these sort of iterative and interactive processes. So that was really nice. Um, but after a while, we're doing a whole bunch of projects in this direction. We wanted to add this element of like narrative, of humanity, of humanness to it. And so rather than just having these worlds to explore, we started creating these situations that were much more sort of narrative story driven. And this idea of a physical narrative that you can actually explore a world by walking into it. And I think one of the approaches or one of the ideas that we use here is um, a physical narrative is like when you visit somebody, you end up like, you say you visit, I come around to see you at your place and we come in and you say, hey, I need 10 minutes. I just need to run down to the post office and deliver this box before it, before the office closes. There's a cup of tea over there. There's a bookshelf over there. Make yourself at home. And then you run away. And by just sitting in your kitchen and looking around or in your office, I or somebody can know a lot about who you are just by what you've got there. What are the table on the table? What are the books that are lying around? What are the pictures on the wall? What are you showing? What are the photographs of family members or people you've met or important events in your life? And Sam Gosling talks a lot about this as a way of knowing how people work. This book, Snoop, which is very creepy. I find it very creepy because I always have Tim in my head when I'm leaving the place here at Times Up Land and he probably just sneaks in my room and he comes up with stories about me every single week in a different way. But anyway. So it's, yes, it sounds creepy. But yeah, that's why Gosling called his book Snoop, we think, because it is a little bit creepy. We got into this process of creating these stories so rather than actually snooping into real people's worlds, actually creating offices and spaces that you could walk into as an audience member and you were invited to snoop around in them and so there were these composed situations of somebody's workspace or playing space or whatever that was um, and yeah people could get lost in them and explore what's going on and the sense that Robert Fisher was talking about our work as encouraging the audience to become proto-scientists to investigate like the mechanics of these new worlds Perhaps we can think about these sort of worlds as inviting an audience to be a proto-detective. Who done it? What's going on here? Why is there nobody here right now? Are they next door? Can we hear them speaking through the through the door? And we've used those sort of techniques. Hear someone in the bath on the telephone talking to people, and that's part of the storyline, part of the narrative that we've created. And yeah, there's this process of creating these worlds, inviting exploration, inviting people to make up the bits of the story that they can't see and coming to various conclusions. 
but to use that knowledge, information, surprise, delight, shock, to reflect on themselves and the world they're in. Is it meant to be this process of both learning, but also reflecting on self in situation? I think it can be used as a self-reflection, but I would see a bit more inviting an audience to, to do interpretation of the stories. So the story world you are walking through and the physical narrative, like everything placed in there is staged on purpose. But nevertheless, as an audience member, you don't have to read the book from A until set. You just have multi-entry points. And by allowing an audience to just start with the book, so to say, at any point, you also certainly offer the opportunity to an audience member to only go there what interests you the most or what you pay first attention to. And so again, here it's the playfulness which correlates between the room and yourself in a way. And whatever story you come up with while detecting and walking through the whole space, it certainly, as an author, always have got some parts of him or herself while writing a story, also the proto-detective or the audience member develops a certain part of biography while reading through the story staged in the room. We had a lot of nice experiments that we're able to do. We tried going through various genres, which was good. We made a, a crime story and we made a um, science story. Um, we had a planned bank robbery, which was, was really good. We also got, we, we really managed to get some proper or some real, how they are called, the layout from a bank, really just around the corner where we were setting up the environment. So people really could walk into that bank and get details of the architecture of the building and yeah. also know where, where, where places are, where mm. you could get the money out of there. And so there's this overblending of the physical reality and the city we're in and the physical space that the installation is in with this sort of fictionalized story and this sort of it's like semi-adventure that's going on, like hearing people through a door or hearing people who are in the subterranean passages talking on the radio and then all of a sudden they turn up and try to get out but the door's been chained shut on them because and things like that. So there's a bit of drama that we put in there. So we had a lot of fun building a bunch of those, did various bits. But one of the most intense ones was perhaps the Mind the Map, which was about the migration situation that was happening in the Mediterranean and has been going on for over 10 years now uh, that we showed in, in Nantes and we showed fragments of it elsewhere. So, yeah, it's, gone, it's been quite playful and also very serious from time to time. And then in about 10 years ago now, actually, as part of a larger project, we were at an event organised by our colleagues, FOAM, in Brussels, and we were involved in a process of imagining what this project could lead to in the future. And it was a very short, maybe two hour long futuring process, where as a group, we got guided through the critical uncertainties process that was gone through and creating four scenarios, little story worlds that could go on. And that was this eye-opening experience for us that the things that we'd been doing we've never really talked about the future because the future is essentially unknowable the future's like open we don't really know what's going to happen people seem to have a bunch of ideas whether it's alvin toffler's books or william gibson books or whatever the smart people seem to think about it but it was like 
yeah, we can't do that. And it's all a bit nonsensical or it's all just technology propaganda. But we've been led through this process and we realized, just a minute, this is something that real people can do. You don't need to be a hyper smarty person or have something you're trying to sell. It can just be a group of people who are interested, can think of multiple futures in parallel, go through a process and get somewhere that's interesting. And I think this gobsmacked us a little bit. That's all of a sudden threw open this door into futures practice mm. and we found we'd arrived there. Yeah, that, then I think we started to allow ourselves, if we can stage those rooms, those physical narratives in a present, why shouldn't we be able to also present and stage some possible futures and even maybe preferred futures and have them in parallel and overlay them? And I think all of a sudden we realized ourselves that we stumbled or tripped into something other people, <laughs> Stuart Candy or Jake Dunnigan, call experiential futures. And I think it also took quite a while quite some years mm. till we found this term and then felt all of a sudden more comfortable or a bit like home in mm. there. And I think if the original question is who we are, then maybe we could end <laughs> this question with, we probably might be what Jose Ramos, Ramos calls mutant futurists. Yeah. We didn't learn to be futurists. We we were doing something else and we accidentally fell in a mud pile and came out covered in futurity yep. or something. Ooh, that sounds a bit like, Ending up in this community has been really interesting because there are a whole bunch of thoughts that people have had and processes that have been developed and, and imaginations and being able to work out, okay, what can we learn from? What can we bring to? What are the unique points that we have as our strengths? How do we merge yeah. into this larger community? It's really quite interesting. And yeah, it's it's been a very exciting couple of years since then. When, oh, there's all this stuff to explore and new toys. <laughs> I'm really interested in what are the philosophies or approaches you've already indicated a joy and a creativity to create scenes. But with your practice, so to speak, what are the underpinning foundations of the work you now do? Well, I think maybe we could have those practices we use separated and summarised at once in probably two main directions or two main areas. There is what we already were mentioning, this experiential futures, which we do sketch, develop, implement together with many other people as well and probably see this a bit as our artistic output, like inviting a broad uh, audience to walk through there and be part of it and uh, experience those futures as one sort of a method, a practice. And then a second one, most certainly yeah, enriching and, and, and informing the other area or the other field, which we call futuring exercises, what can be defined in a nutshell probably as those workshops we do with an interested public and facilitate them through certain exercises during which we support them and inspire them to think out loud about possible futures, like workshops, yep. something between one to or three hours to five days or something. And so then to make those two things possible is a whole bunch of techniques. And this is maybe what 
you're sort of aiming at here is what are the frameworks, what are the underpinnings that we often like use or to keep a large-scale structure here. And one of them in terms of our these featuring exercises is we rely very carefully or very heavily on um, the approaches summarized under the art of hosting. So this idea of that when we're inviting people to come and be part of a, a featuring exercise, we are hosting them in a number of different ways. So we're looking after them, we're caring for them, we're enabling them to play. Because um, if you're feeling exposed in some sense, you're not going to play freely and be able to like have a bunch of strange ideas. So the art of hosting is about picking people up, carrying them through this process, letting them feel comfortable, letting them feel uh, open to a whole bunch of freedoms that they, they can have and discussions that they can have and leave that space and that time feeling like they were they did something that was unique. And this is also quite nice. We, we also try and do this in the experiential futures, of course, because when people come in there, they're also visitors to a space and we want them to feel like they're being hosted and they're able to explore that space. They're able to get quite close to things and be able to have imaginations about what's going on and to relax into the space. It's too much to the point that um, people get lost in the in these physical, these experiential futures and just spend minutes, quarters of an hour more than they, they plan to, which is quite nice. So this art of hosting is probably a very important approach. Yeah. Mm, and since you mentioned the whole sort of playfulness, not sure whether that could be called a practice or a method, but in all of our ideas and, and, and approaches, it's the playfulness which which has got a very important standing because it's doesn't matter whether during the workshops or also in the experiential futures. So I think it's allowing or supporting people to not fear the future. I think it's also about developing some sort of a, a lust of Zukunft. It's a German expression here. A certain passion, a certain excitement towards futures in, instead of merely being completely paralyzed when thinking about it. And I think this is very important for us as well, having that maybe even naive approach towards uh, futures, allow visionary thinking, allow them to be stupid or to be ridiculous, because it is much more about the living with uncertainty instead of just planning the future. We yeah. don't know, as Tim said in the beginning, we don't know what the future really carries in it and what really going to be happening. But preparing or, or developing this passion, this lust for whatever might come we welcome it and we navigate towards it or with it and then see how we are dealing with the uncertainty. Whenever this expression, Lust auf Zukunft, comes up, I just get lust for life from it in the <laughs> back of my head. I was going is, can, I just want to unpack a few phrases that is that are in your work that are interesting phrases. So one I've heard a number of times, this notion of thinking out loud. So what is it about encouraging people to think out loud as opposed to just think? Thinking out loud, especially in groups, thinking out loud collectively, discussing and getting into a dialogue what the future might be and through thinking about that and having also the other positions and other opinions you all of a sudden might not be convinced or, or not necessarily try to convince others about yep. your single vision of the future. All of a sudden, all those positions, ideas, 
visions are merging and through this we might get this diversity which we also have in the present and then have these diverse possibilities for a future and through this together as the group which is talking to each other we might then again feel the agency okay this is a possible vision we have how can we then make that more I don't know, more real. How can we walk then towards this preferred future instead of just, yeah, again, fearing it or just being completely by myself, having one single vision, and it's frightening. Therefore, I just stick my head into the sand or into the earth and not think about it anymore and just walk whatever comes and I ignore signals and trends, which if we think about it loud together, we might be able to deal with. This is one of the reasons why this thinking out loud is when we think we change our minds, but thinking out loud means it's able to change your mind with other people. I think all of us have had the experience of being in a group of people talking about something and there's someone who's got a vision and you just want to slap them on the back of the head and say, yes, thank you for sharing your, I don't know, flying taxis or whatever it is. What else do you want to think of? And this is why the art of hosting is a bit of a framework with which we work to get people to feel comfortable about saying things that they're not so sure about. They're sure about thing one and thing two, but thing three and thing four are more open. They may be more dreamy. They may be less well-defined, but only by thinking out loud and saying them out loud can all of a sudden someone go, I think I know what you mean. Maybe that connects with this thing. And then all of a sudden you get people sharing excitements about something and when it really works, they get to a surprising new conclusion that neither of them could have got to themselves. Yeah. So this thinking out loud is about collectively getting further. I think there's this age-old expression, if you, want, um, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go in a group. This is, comes up often, and I think this idea of thinking out loud is very much about taking on that, thinking out loud, thinking as a group. Thank you. Now, the second one I want you to expand on a bit and Tina's already hinted at it is another phrase you say you go from immersion via agency to engagement. This expression arose last year. One of the ideas of it is by immersing ourselves in possible futures and thinking about them, whether it's in a futuring exercise environment by developing ideas, by actually having these experiences of possible futures walking into an installation or doing a like a pre-hearsal as, as foam talk about where you pretend something's real you get a whole bunch of ideas about what could happen this immersion to agency for instance and then one of the things is then going out and trying this out in smaller experiments so i think this allies closely with uh, jose ramos's ideas of anticipatory experiments where it's about going out and trying things out in activist circles or in in businessy things um, what are the speculations that we have where we'd like to try something out and see whether it works? And if it's just an activist thing of going out and going to the Fridays for Future and talking about something out loud, how we think things could be, and seeing how those things resonate. And what was the third one again? I keep forgetting what the third one is. To engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yes, of course. Because once you actually get through that boundary of talking about it with uh, people uh, in a group or something, you actually get engaged and like really make things change. So you might actually end up forming a new group of whether it's an activist group in your local area, or you might actually start set up a B Corp to do the sort of things that you're interested in doing as a social business. You might set up a charity organization, et cetera, et cetera. There's this 
sort of three stages of going through things that we recognized, whether it was in the Theory U uh, plans and processes or in a whole bunch of other sort of processes that we were looking at for people imagining things and then turning their very open, dreamy, artsy ideas about possible futures into something that they actually wanted to engage with in the world. Another phrase, and I just want to check whether it means anything slightly different to your earlier work, but this notion of walk-through futures. I think there is no real difference to what we had formerly when we had the physical narratives or also the media installations, the walkthrough. I think it's simply referring to the inverse immersive environment. It is something where an audience is really maybe even submerged or sucked into a world which allows them to be there and to pretend as if this either very future or this very crime story is happening in the very now. So it's a bit of a, a, a dual thing to say the, the future artifacts that say near future lab work a lot with or extrapolation factory or Stuart Candy. They're these objects that um, allow you to think about a possible future by picking up and holding an artifact from that future and maybe leafing through the book or playing with the interface or whatever it is, whatever that object does. That's something that sort of you surround and it's in a gallery space or whatever other space. And then the world sort of emerges out of that. Whereas this sort of walk through futures, this idea that we can actually use our entire bodies to experience the being in that space and the olfactory experience of being surrounded by it, the, the different heights of things, the way that we're actually embedded in something. And it surrounds us in such a way that it would not so easily to say, that's not going to happen because it already is happening around me. I'm embedded in it and I can use all this sort of somatic intelligence to think about it. Um, it's, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. So you've got things yeah. like the Mission Biz did that wonderful theatre that went on over months in about 10 years ago, or you've got the Hawaii, Four Futures for Hawaii or Mitigation of Shock from Superflux, where you're inside this possible fu- uh, apartment and you're surrounded by everything that's important in everyday life. And a lot of our installations work with that way of trying to actually embed you in it so that your whole body can be part of your perception and your intelligence that you're using. Thanks for uh, explaining kind of your practice and where you do it. I'm interested in you as just people in the world. What are the futures that are most energising for you? Either they're getting your attention because they excite you or they're getting your attention because they concern you. I think while focusing or while being excited about futures and working on them or playing even with futures, throughout those last couple of years, it feels a bit as if there is a raising, I'd say, a raising awareness of an interconnectivity of signals. This is at least what I or what we feel. There is a certain willingness to accept that there is not a single solution to all the crisis we are facing. And this willingness or this acceptance of there is just not an app 
there is no app out there which is going to be helping us and making the, the, the world a better place and we are not even actually knowing or we do know there is no such a thing as a better world for all of us. We all have got different definitions of what might a better world be or looking like. I think what seems to be very interesting or exciting and, and even keeping us up our feet is that there seems to be a certain tendency that people are willing to approach the crisis in a different way, in a more diverse way, and not just focusing on the solution, either in a technological way or an economic idea of changing the world. So there's this idea that people are prepared to accept that there are collapse-like developments that are probably unavoidable, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be ending up in the road or in some Mad Max scenario, but there is this possibility of an interweaving of utopian progressive developments that will help to mitigate the negative effects of these sort of dystopian collapse type developments. And even some, something like uh, the deep adaptation framework, which is about accepting that many things will change, what we want to give up on, what we want to revive, um, and how to live well in this sort of energy descent scenario uh, to, to deal with what's going on. And for instance, one of the issues that then comes up there is, and once again, we're not talking about faint signals as things that are happening, but more faint signals as awarenesses that are slowly arising and becoming more there, is this idea that things like inequalities, wealth gaps, health gaps, will make these things worse and that there's something to be gained from a solidarity without wealth gaps and bringing that into a society to help us deal with the, the predicaments that we're in much better. So much so that a question that we got at an exhibition almost two years ago now, after presenting some of our work, someone stood up and very emotionally asked, how dare you maintain visionary thinking in times like these? They were uh, quite upset that we would um, hold on to this possibility that things are not just going to get worse, but that maybe we have ways of thinking and developing and changing and making things less worse. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Have you got... And this is what we see in terms of, I don't know, weak signals or something, that there is a certain degree of passion about visionarity. I think there are much more people out there who are probably also because, uh, only because we are a bit more active in this field, yeah, sharing the visions. Which is quite lovely. How do you tackle the communication question with people who don't know, that don't understand what it is you do and the way you approach it? And one of the things that we start off with is this, as we talked about beforehand, this idea of visiting someone's office to, and creating okay. a story where you can tell something about somebody. And people understand that quite often. They find it creepy, which is understandable, <laughs> but it's a, it's a way of, talking about the artistic practice of building these environments to explore ideas. And perhaps one of the things that emerged out of that was a discussion, okay, the old work that we're doing, people were proto-scientists. Yep. Then they became proto-detectives in these physical narratives. So maybe in these experiential futures, people were inviting people to act like proto-futurists. They're not real futurists with qualifications and degrees and things. But they're proto-futurists. They're like trying out the idea of being a futurist for themselves and seeing what will go on. 
If we don't want to call it proto-futurists, we also can say that we are then to communicate what we are doing is actually maybe similar to a sports coach. What we do is helping people to train their imagination. Yeah, it's a bit like seeing imagination as a muscle. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is what very often happens. I'm just very glad sort of watching Tim's daughter in the very moment. And she's in this constant what if and as if. And that's just great seeing. And this is something we maybe try to train or maybe try to offer as soon as we are approaching an audience, either in the Futuring Exercises or the Experiential Futures, to support this what if and as if thinking and being. Therefore, I even could try to explain to my grandmother or my mother saying, I'm a sports coach. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I did catch Tina's point that we don't necessarily use the future's muscle in order to plan the future. We actually use the future's muscle to become more creative and resilient in the face of the future. Precisely. That's the sort of thing we'd like to hope for. And a lot's got to do with acting, having more of a a beginner's mind or a child's mind. Like Tina said about watching our daughter just play with things, she's, she's just open. And we learn at some point in our lives, possibly as teenagers, that making things up and being full of fantasy is socially difficult, even unacceptable. And you could even say that a lot of our work, even these immersive environments that we were building 20 years ago, were about encouraging serious black wearing arts people to act like children and to explore things and to be in their bodies and not just be in their minds. And it's very delightful to watch a bunch of quite serious people act foolishly in public and they love it too until they remember that they're acting foolishly in public (laughs) and they maybe get embarrassed but it's okay we've helped crack open that facade a little bit and hopefully improve their lives just a little bit for a moment thank you let's wrap up on the book because it's through the book that i met you You have just written and or you have published a book that is called Futures Brought to Life. Do you want to talk about the book, what it's for, who it's aimed at? It's an interesting book in the future space, but I'll let you explain why. Perhaps one of the things that we first need to mention is the subtitle. Yes. The subtitle is We Are No Futurists. It's probably a very like German grammar thing. We're just saying we're not trained futurists and most people aren't. We're just people who've slipped into this space and have found a whole bunch of delight in this space and valuable things that are worth doing and wanted to share some of that, that enjoyment and those insights and the things that we've found. It's almost like we've been roaming around inside this world and we've found a couple of pretty stones that we'd like to put in a box and show to our friends. Um, that's, that's part of what we're doing. Part of we've made a whole bunch of new friends. So a big part of the book was contacting people like yourself and asking them a bunch of questions, and particularly two questions, um, about how do they think about bringing futures to life and asking them about strategies for maintaining uh, visionary futures thinking because these are two of the biggest questions that we're dealing with and we think that the spectrum of answers that we received 
from people from like very serious futurists to people who were wondering why the hell we were asking this question. Um, like saying, I've got nothing to do with futures. I just think in the future we should be nice to each other. But, and that but was really interesting. So this has been a very important part of the book and the process. And we think there's a lot to be gained through reading those things. And the other thing, maybe the, the audience that we're aiming for is people who, like us, have become aware that there is something called futuring, but don't quite know how to go about doing it, is by sharing our experiences of what we do and how we found futures thinking, emerging with it, and maybe even sharing a lot of some of the techniques that we've found to be useful, is it might make it easier for other people to say, oh, I could do that too like the Sniffing Glue magazine in 1970 that said, here's three guitar chords, now go and start a band. This might be the equivalent of that. Okay, go out mm. and do some string. Here's some very simple uh, fragments that you can put together, which probably means that accomplished futurists might find it less valuable because it's maybe talking about a lot of things that they already know. On the other hand, we hope, and we've got a little bit of feedback like this, that people have said, hey, look, this is such a very different perspective on what futures work is, that it actually offers a way for futurists to mutate themselves and to find some things perhaps outside what it is that they would normally do and maybe have some different types of fun with what they do, maybe. Yeah, you actually say some very important things that often I think in the more traditional literature we don't say. So, And I'm going to pick up a couple of these and maybe you want to expand on them. You say the future is a verb. You've actually got it in big letters almost on the first page of the book. <laughs> if you use future as a verb, it becomes something you can do. Yep. It includes activity. I am futuring instead of the future or even futures, which always can be then categorized. It is something what is stable. It can be explained and is in a box. While the verb, you do something, is much more open to a flexible or malleable thing and output. Yeah. Like Tina mentioned earlier, this questions of agency. Yes. By the future being a verb, we're talking very much about not the consumption of futures, but the creation of futures, and that all of us have a role to play in creating the futures in our Smaller community groups, whether it's an arts group, families, extended families, friends, activist groups, whatever that is, it's something that we can do. And it's forever changing. The future just keeps moving. Another phrase you added, which I've not seen in a lot of books on futures, futures care. There's probably a number of things that are floating around in here. One of them is this... Mm with this Lust auf Zukunft expression from German, this sort of lust for life thing, is about caring about the futures, but also care in the sense of caring for something that's maybe weak at the moment. So whether it's a person who's ill or whatever other things, you've got a, a cat that's dying, needs care. Caring for the futures is about looking after them, either when they're in the process of maybe dying, like giving up on this future, the future of the world is going to be a glorious place where we all live in our Western standards of living, having stakes every second night. That future is dying and needs to be maybe uh, hospiced or given, given some palliative care. But also the futures that are being born 
need the care to help them grow and become something bigger and stronger. So there's two ideas of future care. It also uh, resonates strongly with one of the versions of the permaculture ethics, which is about future care, earth care, people care, and future care. We look after the earth that looks after us, we look after other people, and we look after the future by not grabbing everything for ourselves now. So there's some ideas of what future care might be. Thank you. I think you are downplaying the the professionalism in the way that you've assembled a good literature around experiential futures. You talk about futures as a muscle and how you build the muscle in people. There's some quite detailed descriptions of the actual walkthrough futures and processes and installations that you've run. Do you want to just talk some more about that information that you've made available to people who get the book? Wow. Firstly, thank you for those very kind words. <laughs> thank for that. I think the walkthrough futures especially, we are working on this uh, world of Turnton since I think almost seven or eight years and getting into more detail during this future pot is just probably completely exploding our time here. Maybe a, a, a brief idea. The reason why we did the book is I think we have been walking into so many directions in terms of futures and future thinking, future studies even, and we learned so much throughout those last years. I think it was also, in a way, a certain moment for us to sit down and to re reflect and to, to bring into shape what has been either challenging, exciting, interesting for us throughout those years and bring it somehow a bit onto a single page, even though the book has got more pages. And just now also saying and appreciating all the help and all the ideas we got and maybe even stole from others in the community and have that wrapped up in the very moment through the book and keep going and walk towards new or other futures from this very moment. I don't know whether that makes sense now. Yep. Uh, no, we, I think we can't it? elaborate on Turton in this very moment. It, it would just, for me, it's an overwhelming mm. question. It's eight years, <laughs> eight years of development and implementation work. And especially, for example, right in the beginning, right now, behind us, there is the next step of developments within Turnton with, uh, for this walkthrough futures. We're going to be opening an exhibition in just less than a week or two weeks about traveling in the year 2047, aiming at six to 12-year-old kids. This is just such an also exciting and challenging next step after the book has been published, for example. It just doesn't stop, as Tim said before, the future or futures are yeah, constantly changing and in movement. It's a very exciting sort of process. And being able to take the time to write all this down was very interesting to reflect on it and to then reflect upon those reflections and then throw away all the reflections and start again. There are tendrils that go back. So there was a book that we did almost 10 years ago called Physical and Alternate Reality Narratives with a bunch of collaborators. And we went back and revisited a lot of the reflections that we had from then to remind us of what we'd learned then to, that have helped us to make these sort of physical narratives <clears throat> and, and immersive uh, experiential futures work. 
Um, so much so that people have actually asked us to write this down and we've tried in various uh, times to write things down. Maybe one of the reasons why we weren't able to do it before now was because there is a, a, a lot of elements in there that are hard to explain to people, but maybe this has been the right sort of context where we've had enough time now, enough experience to be able to summarise it in a way that's hopefully intelligible. Maybe we'll find a bunch of other people creating wonderful immersive experiences of possible futures um, that we can wander through. You ask people like me and a very interesting group of people, you ask them two questions. How can one bring futures to life and which strategies do you recommend for maintaining visionary futures thinking? What's your sense of what you got from that last chapter of the book? Mm-hmm. Is it, yes, there was a lot of pleasant surprises or details. Like we contacted people because we're pretty sure they were going to be able to say something interesting and we knew their work. But nevertheless, we were surprised by a lot of people, what they said. And some of them were very flippant comments that were quite insightful and some of them were long and detailed ones. Yeah, and I think it's probably not a, a, a single answer which is sticking out, so to say, but again, it's the mixture of all of them which gave us again, how to say, a certain safety in there are so many people out there, so many people we either already have been knowing before and working together with them or meeting through asking those questions, which just convinces us or makes us comfortable again to keep going in this direction and really stay with the idea of visionary future thinking. I'm curious about what you might have observed in regards to the generational difference of the people who engage with your work and with your installations because there's an aspect, I think Tim talked about this, is that they're people who are caring for ideas about futures that they may have once thought were possible, preferable, that are possibly leaving or possibly departing the world. And then there are people who are just born into the world the way the world is. Much of it's a generational thing because, but maybe there are a lot of old souls in the bad sense, people who are young physically just holding on to the way they think the world needs to be and they're not open for change. And a lot of very young souls, even in older bodies, who we've seen be very open to talking about and exploring ideas and to have this sort of joyful exploration of futures as the parable says that the true optimist or the visionary is the person who plants a tree they'll never sit underneath Mm. um there's a certain degree of maybe it's not generational but there's an attitudinal thing about being young and enthusiastic that we've noticed and i think another thing maybe we noticed is that again it's not about generations but it also has to do with how to call it, maybe an economic or a social background. There was one workshop we were running with Roma people in Romania. And it was the very first time that I realized that there are so many people out there who don't see that they would have a future. And in their eyes, they just can't think beyond the day after tomorrow. And so For me, it was a moment where I realized the privilege of being able to think and to shape or to think about futures. 
And this even was inspiring quite a lot, enriching also our workshop processes in a way that we started to think uh, about dreams and wishes and hopes much more and integrate that into the process design of, of futuring exercises because it's so much easier to start with thinking about the wishes and the dreams and then sort of go to future thinking. So you need, hmm. yeah, again here, I think it's a playfulness or it's a low threshold in a way, even without using the wrong words here, hopefully. But yeah, the not necessarily the generations. I, I, I think we do have got different approaches. It has got so many other aspects which are important and allowing people to think about futures and not allowing it then. Thanks. That's a lovely answer to finish on. Thanks, Turner and Tim, for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. Congratulations on the book. It's eight years in the making. It's a very generous contribution to our community. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for saying this at the end. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Great being here. And we look forward to carrying on being part of the community and lots of interesting discussions into the future. This was a rich, joyous and highly generative journey through Tim and Tina's experiences from immersive art to visionary futures. I encourage you to have a look at their book, Futures Brought to Life, We Are Not Futurists, and steal back the ideas they stole in turn. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, please check out our Patreon link on the website. I'm Peter Hayward. Thanks for joining us today. <music>